Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 6. We'll be looking at the opening of the fifth seal, verses 9 through 11. Revelation, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb that sits upon the throne, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, help us to remember the glory, the power, And the utility that our prayers are before your throne. That we might be before we are anything else. Before we plan. Before we leap. May we pray. And seek the glory and honor of your name in all things. Let all things be saturated. By this blessed exercise of seeking your glory to be manifest in our lives, even now this morning, as the word is preached. Be with your servant. Be with your people. Grant to us wisdom and humility to hear and understand and to learn what you have prepared for us, we pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. So one of the ways in which a sermon will come together Monday through Friday, Friday (laughs) is sometimes how it feels. I don't know if you've ever had that occasion, young people and you adults who look back on the days of paper writing, your teacher gives you an assignment and you think, how will I ever get this down? What do I say? What do I write? And sometimes what you begin to do is you just start writing. Uh, There are many disciplined songwriters in history. Leonard Cohen is one of those. Bob Dylan, I'm using the guys who I kind of grew up on. And every day they would write a song. They would just write. And the songs that you've heard are the good ones. You never hear the ones that end up in the trash can or on the floor or wherever they end up, in the fire. When... God has given us his word, and he has given to a minister the responsibility to write. One of the things that often happens is as you open the text and you begin to unpack it, right? Uh, you end up with a lot more stuff on the page than you had originally planned. That's what happened this week. As I was looking at the fifth and sixth seal I realized that the fifth seal may be for us not not just one of the most 
beautiful in its inspiration, but informational and exhortational. When I say inspirational, I mean it gives us energy and encouragement. It gives us good emotions. And when I say informational, it informs our minds and teaches us how to think. And when I say exhortational, I mean it gives us something to think about in terms of how our lives ought to be shaped. The scripture really ought to do this every time we come to it. And in verses 9 through 11, when we see the martyrs before the throne and Christ, in essence, opens up for them an audience before the throne, we find them pleading with Christ for a certain thing and Christ's response to them. That is what I want to look at this morning. What they are asking for, how they are asking for it, and the answer that Christ gives and how that instructs us how to live. So really, just two points this morning. I've been on a two-point kick for a long time. The prayers of the martyrs, the first point. And second, a model for all the saints. The prayers of the martyrs and a model for all of the saints. Let's look at the first one. The prayers of the martyrs. Now, the offering of the martyrs' prayers and the offering of our prayers fit into a category of things that we call means of grace. This is a term that you will hear a lot in Reformed churches because these are the things that undergird and are always included and ought to be included in all worship services to some degree. And they are word, prayer, sacrament. The word is the reading and teaching and preaching of this. This is the word of God. All 66 books of the Bible that have been laid down for us, and when it is read and preached and taught, the Spirit is teaching us something. He is speaking. Can't hear him. Right? It's the wind that Christ speaks of. And you see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. We had quite a wind yesterday. In fact, we got to church this morning and the basketball goal had been blown over. The other day, we walked out in the backyard and one of our entire chicken coops had been flipped over on its head. And there was Ruth, whatever we've named the rooster that has been broody of late, sitting nearly upside down on the, I guess the eggs were sitting on her. She was persistent. We see what the wind does, but we cannot see the wind. There is something mystical about it. Now, here is something you need to learn about the kinds of people you live among today in a modern, hedonistic, secular, humanistic world. They hate mystery. Because you can't run on mystery, can you? You can't make promises. You can't say, I adhere to mystery. There's been a lot of mystery in the world around us, and men cannot abide it. I don't like mystery. What's going to happen in the future? I want to know. I want to guarantee success. How much do I need to lay aside? Well, how much, how much do you need to lay aside? And so we have people whose entire careers are built on financial planning. But there is a mystery that comes in the relationship of heaven and earth. And when we offer prayers that are made of material, right? Sound is material. 
Prior to creation, there was no sound, there was no time, there was no space. All of that has weight. It is measurable. It is material. But when we offer those material things before the throne, they are offered in an immaterial place. Christ hears them, who has a body like we have, and he, gathering all of the prayers of all of the saints through time and space, offers them before the, they are offered before the throne, they are offered before Christ, and he hears them and he answers them. And I wish to ask you, how does that happen? And your right answer is, mm, I don't know. I don't know, but I know that they are. And I know that they are because here in the scriptures, we read of them in three different places in the book of Revelation, just to verse or chapter 8. The prayers are offered earlier in Revelation. Here the prayers of the martyrs are offered. And then in chapter 8, the prayers of the saints are offered in a golden bowl, a golden censure. Now, here is what we know, though. Prayer does something. That God hears our prayers, he brings our prayers, and then they are perfected in their being offered upon the altar before the throne. How much more the prayers of those who have been perfected in righteousness? That is what we see here. Those who have died for the sake of Christ's name, for the glory and honor of his kingdom, at the hands of the Jews who knew better, those who also killed the prophets, who killed Jesus, who are killing the martyrs in, pa- in the past, how much more those who know better how to pray, who are before the very throne of Christ, having their flesh, well, mortified. They are disembodied humans before the throne. We find here in verses 9 through 11 the opening of the fifth seal, an occasion in which the, the martyrs are before the throne of Christ and they offer to him their prayers. Now, what are the content of these prayers? They cried out with a loud voice, verse 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the land? This is a prayer. It is a pleading. It is a crying out before Christ that he would bring judgment upon those who put them to death in the land of Israel. This is the prayer of a perfected people, a people whose hearts are only inclined to see Christ's glory multiplied under the furthest reaches of the earth. Now, this is not a prayer for personal vendetta, right? They're not saying, you know, Joe, whatever, what's, the, what's the, the general name? Joe Smith or whatever that guy, but a Jewish version of that. These Jews who had been given the law and the prophets for centuries, from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, constantly rejected the word of God to repent and to embrace Christ for salvation. And so when Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene, And he teaches as only the Messiah could teach. And he does miracles as only the Messiah could do. They kill him. They kill him. It's crazy. And not only did they kill Jesus, but the Jews also killed his disciples. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. 
John on the Isle of Patmos was dipped in hot oil. And all of this while happening in the Roman Empire was done by the Jews. And they continue to reject Jesus Christ to this day. And they reject Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah sent from the Father to bring salvation and to usher in the millennium in which we're living right now. Their prayers, the martyrs' prayers in verse 10 or verse 9 through 11 is in essence a personal way of expressing thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is the petition that Christ himself taught us to pray. This is why we added it to our regular liturgy. Now you may say, oh yeah, I know this prayer. The church has been praying this prayer for centuries. I don't want you to think of it as simply Reformation OPC doing things that people have done for a long time because it sounds nice and because it's something that you and I ought to memorize. The Lord's Prayer is in essence a military rallying cry for the work and the proclamation of the kingdom of Christ. It's what the general says to its troops prior to going into battle. This is how you ought to think. This is how you ought to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the following petitions that are built into that. This is how the kingdom of Christ comes. And what the martyrs are saying is this, Lord, Having died for the furthering of your kingdom, would you cause it to come in full? Bring about the consummation of the thing for which we have died. Now I would ask you this. The founding fathers of this nation were to rise from the grave and see what we've done with their hard labors. What would they think? Would they find a moral, self-regulated people? Now, of course, not everybody was moral and self-regulated back then, and neither were they, frankly, in many ways. But what would they think? Or the wills that maybe you inherited from relatives. What did you do with that good gift that I gave you? How do we live in light of the precious gift of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Well, we ally ourselves, we endeavor to be faithful to the spirit of Christ's work at Calvary. These martyrs are identified with the very humiliation and sacrifice of Christ because they died as he died for the proclamation. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that is still true today. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be baptized. They were offering prayers, and the content of those prayers were, Lord, would you finish what you started? Finish it. And not because that guy over there, you see him? He killed me. No, their prayers are, Christ, exalt yourself in all the earth. Now, as Christians, it is easy for us to feel slighted by the world. That guy did something to me, and because I have an audience with Christ in prayer, I'm going to pray that that guy would suffer because of what he did to me. No, this is not the nature of the martyr's prayers. It is for the glory and honor of Christ. They were jealous for the glory of God. Now, who were they? Who were these martyrs? Look at how John describes them. 
Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls, all right? These are disembodied humans. They're people. And their souls are around the throne, and they had been slain for the word of God. They were martyred for Christ and for the witness that they had borne. I want you to think Stephen, the great deacon, and the thousands of others just like him. Now look at verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe, and they are told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had. So they are near the throne, they are dressed in white robes, and they are speaking with the Lord. This is why Paul can say to live as Christ and to die as gain. To live as Christ and to die as more Christ. When you die, this is the state in which you go. You are a disembodied soul that awaits the fullness of the coming of the kingdom of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. How long you may wait, I do not know. Remember what the promise is? A thousand generations? Forty years is a generation? That's a lot of years. Kids, you can do the math. I don't know. You don't know. Jesus, even in his human nature, did not know the time in which he himself would come back. It is not for men to know. But we know this, that there is never a time in the life of the saint where he is not in intimate proximity before the throne of grace. In this life, by the Spirit. In the next life, we are there. We are at the throne. It only gets better. Right? They're near the throne. They've been brought near because their fight is over. It is their reward This should reassure you that you should go to death with a smile on your face as best as you can because the best is yet to come. They're dressed in white robes. They are holy and triumphant. They're justified in Christ Jesus. They are now not yet glorified, but they are free from the flesh, free from sin. And their angst is not because they are disembodied ghosts like poltergeists like you find in these movies of today. No, their angst is not personal, it's kingdom-related. When you feel, when you are jealous for something, when you are angry for something, it ought to be for Christ and his kingdom. Their angst is not as those in some transitory state For they are already righteous. Remember? Well, we see it. They're dressed in white robes. Their angst is that Christ's kingdom has not yet fully come. And that those who rally against and rail against the kingdom of righteousness are allowed to live and continue in their wickedness. And they are speaking. They are speaking with Christ. They cry out before him. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Their glory, their expectation, their anticipation was wrapped up in the glory of Christ, what he has done and what he will continue to do. 
And as I look at this text, more and more I think, how do I live now like what these guys are doing here? How do I become this kind of person? First, with the sentiment that my angst, my impatience is not financial or familial or transitory, but eternal. Christ, when, you were, will, when will you reveal yourself to the nations? And the answer to that question is, when I get busy getting out there and taking dominion, that's when he will do it. And the more I do that, the sooner he comes. When is payday? When the job is finished. When the job is complete and it's not yet complete. And this is, in fact, what Christ says to them. How long? And the Lord says to them, Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. This sense of completion speaks to a fixed time that Christ himself has allotted when he will come. Now, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and the prayers of these martyrs at the hands of Jews in times past refers to the judgment of Jerusalem. There is no more offensive martyrdom than the martyrdom of those who confess Christ by those who openly reject Christ, who know better. What I mean is this, that the truly righteous die at the hands of those who think themselves righteous. That is the great offense in martyrdom. These are children of Abraham who are killing those who are the true children of Abraham. Do you think this offends God? And the answer to that question is, you better believe it. Of course it offends the Lord. It offends his holy character and will. There's someone at the door. He needs to be let in. Come all who are weary and heavy laden. <laughs> Their glory, their pride, not sinful pride, but their whole lives, they're looking at Christ and they're saying, Lord, would you do the thing that you've told us you will do? And they're not impatient, but they're eager. They want it to happen. They want it to happen. And their prayers are part of and built into the very design of Christ Jesus. Now, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, Doug Kelly writes, once the saints have been martyred, they don't lose their effectiveness in changing the course of world history. Their continuing ministry in this regard is hidden from us on earth, except we're told here, right? For they are now beyond the range of our physical observation. The only thing that keeps you from praying isn't even death. Do you know what it is? A heart that is not convinced of the effectiveness of your prayers. That's it. It's apathy. You don't even have to be able to speak. You can be mute. You don't even have to have a body, the scripture tells us. That the saints, both militant and triumphant, are effective in their prayers to change the course of world history. Why? 
because Christ is behind it all. And built into the sovereign rule and reign of Christ is this ear to the prayers of his people. I think Kelly's right. Dr. Kelly is right. And this is why I would say Tertullian is right when he said, at least he's credited saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. All the world does by killing Christians is make more effective prayer warriors. That's it. You get graduated to a place where your prayers are perfected. I like that. What I like is that you can stand before the world and the world can aim their weapons at you and you can look at them and smile and say, there is no way in heaven or on earth that you will ever silence the work of the church. And you can say, bring it on. I dare you. I dare you to do it. They cannot. Now here in this life, Satan can touch us to some degree, right? Even Christ says, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and send the soul to hell. There is something worth dying for. And if for no other reason than this, die for the cause of Christ so that you might be in greater proximity to the throne and your prayers heard. How sweet the prayers of Stephen And you know what Stephen continues to do even to this day? Not just pray for the judgment of Jerusalem. But as we look at Revelation 9, and though 9 through 11, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, are specifically about those killed by Jews, it is no less true of all the saints in all the world who have ever been martyred for the cause of Christ Jesus. I'm not saying... Go out and get martyred. But maybe. Maybe we should think to ourselves, why am I struggling so hard and striving so hard as a disciple of Christ Jesus to be loved by those who would as soon as kill me as be converted? Why do we seek so much the honor and pleasure of the world? Prayer is powerful. And it's powerful not because it's magic, but it is mystical. It is mystical because even while we utter these things today, in just a moment, after worship and our time of coffee and fellowship, we'll come back up into this room. And I want you to think this. When we gather in this room together as God's people, we are going, Lord, listen. Do this for us. Not arrogantly, pridefully, presumptuously. But we take the, the, the words that Christ has taught us to pray and we speak those things to him. And we knock on heaven itself and we say, Lord, come down and make yourself known. And Christ says, I'll do it. I'll do it. In fact, can a church grow, thrive, do battle against darkness when a fraction of her people show up to congregational prayer meetings? Because we live like our faithfulness doesn't actually matter. We live this way. God will do it anyway. It's just how much I want to be invested. That's really what piety is. 
I'll get off on this stop and I'll ride this far, but the train's going there anyway. And what scripture teaches us is this. No, that's not how it works. How it works is this. The more you pray, the greater the glory of Christ is revealed. Now, I cannot explain that to you, and that is why it is mystical. But the more you pray, the more we pray, if you wish for Reformation to grow and for us to have courage in the face of of darkness and wickedness, of the princes of men who ally themselves against the church, if we wish to be successful, we will pray. That's it. Now we need pray, we need word, and we need sacrament. But prayer is the often neglected element in worship. And yet Revelation teaches that our prayers and our persistence matters. And so we see this glimpse of the martyrs, and we are encouraged by John not to take pity, not to go, oh, Lord, what a loss. Calvin is praying. Luther, Augustine, Abraham, David, Jacob, Joseph, the great heroes of the faith, all of them with feet of clay, and those who were martyred, those whose heads were taken off, those who were burned at the stake, Jan Hus, Wycliffe, and others, all of these men and women and children plead before the throne of Christ and they say, how long? Until the time is complete. Christ doesn't go, ooh. He says, what? When the judgment that I will bring against the nations is complete. And, I would add, though it is not here, until all of the number of the elect are brought in. You are in church because a martyr has prayed. I know that sounds Hokey, maybe, but it's not. The church is built upon the ministry of the martyrs. And so secondly, what I was getting to earlier in the sermon is, this is what I started preparing. I'm like, oh, I can't do both seals. It's too much. There's just too much to focus on here. So what is the model? If it's true of these martyrs, then it is true of all the martyrs. And if it's true of the martyrs, then we're told specifically, and we'll get there eventually, Revelation chapter 8, it's true of all the saints. If there is anything to learn about piety, it is from those who are holy and triumphant. If you want to see what perfect worship looks like, go to the book of Revelation. Now, in our own denomination, there was a big debate when this book right here was published. And there were ministers of the gospel that said, no imprecatory psalms in this book. This is an imprecatory psalm. And these are perfect saints singing it. Now, we may sing imprecatory psalms imperfectly, but that should not stop us from singing them. Because we sing to a perfect God who brings perfect judgment. And yes, there are times, right? Maybe you've done this. You're driving down the road. Someone cuts you off. And all of a sudden, you start singing Psalm 135. (laughs) That's not righteous, imprecatory singing. It is all built around and centered on the cross. Why the cross? Because the cross is that place 
where God judges all men in Christ Jesus, either through mercy as the blood of Christ washes away the sins of those who do not deserve it, or those who are judged because they fail to kiss the Son and embrace Christ for sa- as Savior, and they are judged because they are already sinners. Our worship should look like this. Your heart, when you come to worship, should long for the furthering and the revelation of Christ's kingdom. Step by step by step. And it takes a while. And we have a while. Hearts that beat with the call to worship and adore Christ. And as prayers go, mouths who plead with the Messiah to glorify himself on earth as it is in heaven. Parents, you've prayed for your children this way, haven't you? Over. Lord, how long? How long will they be rebellious? And he looks at you and he says, how long will you be rebellious? <laughs> how long, Lord, will we remain apathetic to the things of the kingdom? And what the Lord does is he shakes the things of earth so that that which may not be shaken may endure. And the Lord from time to time, corporately speaking, awakens his church by bringing upon them elements of judgment to cause us to remember what our primary cause and crusade is. And so some of you may look at what's happening in our nation and in this world and say, "Uh uh-oh, it's a sign of the times, but they're reading the signs wrong. It's that global world government, one currency, and we're going, no, you're reading the signs wrong. Do you know how many times this has happened? Do you know what every Christian said at the fall of the empire of Rome? The Lord is near. Well, he may have been. Well, clearly he wasn't. But a good portion of the ministry of many of these people is prediction. When really the great portion of the ministry of the saints is what? Pleading in prayer. If it be that time, make us faithful. But if not, we will continue. And so what better application to the church, what better exhortation is there to look at verses 9 through 11 and go, I want to pray like that. I want to live like that with a life that is martyred for Christ while living. And I know that this is not the essence of what John is getting at here. But I cannot help but think Do I live in light of this reality that there is a throne that stands in heaven and even now the martyrs are gathered around it and they are praying for you and for me that we might be faithful because that is what is required for the kingdom to come in full. They prayed because it's something they cared about. They prayed because in a perfected state, that is all you care about. Now, when I say all you cared about, what I do not mean is that Christians on earth should be so spiritually minded, you've heard this, that they are no earthly good. That we are to do all things as an offering to the Lord, whether it is mowing our grass, trimming branches that go down the hill to the parking lot at the back of the church, right? All of those things mopping up the fellowship hall. All of those things, when done for the glory of Christ, fill up to the measure of Christ's sacrifice. Now, 
One of the points that Doug Wilson makes in his little commentary on Revelation, which I would argue is probably the number one book I would say go out and read because it's just so easy. When the man comes around is the name of that commentary. The point that he makes is this. He looks at Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, where the blood is poured out upon the altar. And this pouring out of the blood that is the blood of his disciples, Christ's disciples, does not compete with or add to the once and for all sufferings of Christ Jesus, but rather fills them up. It perfects them in this way. When God made man, he put him in the garden, and he put him in a decidedly imperfect or incomplete world. It was good, but the work of creation wasn't fully finished. Man was given something else to do. And that was what? To be a priest on earth and to manifest the glory of God by populating it with people and building cities under the glory of God. Empires. Adam and Eve were not always meant to be wholly agrarian. That's the hippie gospel, right? That isn't a gospel of dominion and conquest. And so you don't get back to nature and say, this is the Lord's work. No, building skyscrapers is the Lord's work. But when you build it to the glory of man, it's nothing. It's Babel. When you build it to the glory of Christ, it's honoring to him. And in the same way that Adam was filling up the measure of the work of creation when Christ sets his children loose upon the earth and we even suffer for his sake, we are filling up the measure of Christ's sacrifice. And it's all part of God's plan. And so, in fact, when Christ comes to Saul and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is because Saul was instrumental in the persecution of the saints. Because when we die for Christ, when we live for Christ, when we suffer for Christ, it is all for Christ. His name is stamped right here on your forehead. Children, I want you to remember that. And just because you visit certain websites and don't go into the gas station, that, that name is still there. He sees it all. He sees it all. And so Wilson is not wrong, I think, in this observation that should help us understand that when we suffer for the sake of Christ, what we are doing is we are magnifying the glory of his shed blood. And we are perfecting that work which he began. It doesn't stop. The work you do for Christ never stops. Heaven is not that place where you go, ah, I did it. It's not retirement, according to the world, where you do nothing. It's just a change in call. And it's an incredible promotion. Not like glorification when we get our bodies back. Those sanctified, glorified bodies but we need to see the work that we do as saints is filling up the measure of Christ's sacrifice. That our prayers and our sufferings are the means by which Christ makes history. To bring it home a little bit, because that last point may have been a bit esoteric. 
Christ's response to the martyrs is, wait, I have a plan. Now, the fulfillment of that in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, was that there were more martyrs that had to be killed by the Jews in Jerusalem and Israel before Christ would come and judge the city. He used Rome, but Rome was the instrument of a divine king who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth. Not every person gets this. If CNN had been there around 70 AD, not only would they have gotten the story wrong, but even if they had told the exact story, what would they say? Rome sacks the city. But what is the real story? Christ judges an adulterous bride. Christ judges those who rejected his offer of peace. And that peace treaty, what better peace treaty could God the Father extend to sinful men than his own son? Like those scenes where you have one king who sends another king and they send their emissaries out onto the field and one emissary comes back holding his head in his hand. What is that king going to do? Charge. Clearly, the peace treaty has been rejected. When Christ was killed, they said, this is what we think of your proclamation of peace, creator. Some were convinced and converted. Many were not. But the story isn't the story, is it? The story that we see in Revelation chapter 6 is not just the story of what happened in Jerusalem and Israel. It's the same story over and over again. For instance, what in the world is happening between Russia and Ukraine? And you spend all your time figuring out by scouring the web what is actually going on. This doesn't seem to be what it is. And I'm saying to you, you know that it is not what it seems to be. What is it? The martyrs are praying. The saints in heaven are praying. Christ is shaking the stuff of earth so that that which may not be shaken may endure. What we are doing is we are, we are living in the mystery that we are not sovereign over the affairs of men, but we do know this. Christ will and is using all of these things, bringing in the prayers of the saints to further his glory in the nations. What we can say is whatever happens there, what we know is heaven is where it's all being controlled from. Is Zelensky a puppet? Yes. Is Putin a puppet? Yes. Compared to the one who sits upon the throne of heaven? Who are we? We are nothing. Except this. The saints of Christ are in fact the great shakers and movers in human history. When Joshua prayed, Lord, there's a battle going on here. I need time. And what did Christ do? He stopped the sun. He stopped the sun. So that Israel could fight a little bit longer. How did that happen? How did that? Christ did that. Because his servant asked it. And what does Christ say to us upon the occasion of his ascension? 
even greater things than I did, you will do. Do we believe that? And I would add this. The more heaven is filled with martyrs, the greater the volume of perfected prayers. That's why I believe that at some point, when there is an expanding number of perfected saints in heaven, and their prayers are offered before the throne, and those prayers are used by Christ to unleash power on earth, things will happen. Things that you and I can never dream of. It's just a ramping up. But how do we live? Like nothing will ever change. No, brothers and sisters, things have changed. And things continue to change. Because prayers are a means of conquering the nations. You must believe this. This, whether or not Tertullian thought of it this way... This is how the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That when the world tries to silence us, guess what Christ does? He makes it better. That is our hope. And by God's grace, what we will see, even in our faithfulness to him, is he will manifest his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we ask, even now this morning...